Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape, and abuse share their own personal stories from hurt to healing. I am your host, Katie Kessner, and when I was 18, I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine as a survivor myself. I had been victimized by another student at my college and decided to speak out and stand up for my own self. And in turn, I've dedicated my entire life to helping others do the same. This podcast is part of my own journey. Today's episode is with Angela Shelton. Many of our listeners may think they know Angela. She is a filmmaker, screenwriter, author, activist, working to change rape culture. You may have seen her award-winning film, Searching for Angela Shelton, read her book, Finding Angela Shelton. She also has a, an, an Emmy-winning children's show. And today you're going to learn there is no more radical way to journey through healing, um, perhaps for this woman, than making films and really asking us to stretch our imaginations about what's possible. She shares her own survivorship and her story, her healing journey, and her passion for rule breaking. And you can only imagine what you're gonna learn on this episode. She is a study in resilience and she shares her own joy in healing. Listen in. Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, we want you all to know that the contents of the podcast can be emotionally difficult. And so we also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. Please reach out to friends, family, even a hotline for support. Additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And we are so excited and thrilled to have with us um, Angela. Angela, you know, I'm just using your first name because we always go by first names around here, whether they're real or fictitious, but I think Angela is actually your name. Um, so you kind of are a little bit more well-known than some of our interviewees, but no, no less more or less important. So um, for the gift of all of us listening to you, can you share a few moments of your bio and where you come from, who you are, and your journey to get there? It's funny because my name is Angela Shelton and my whole work is based around my name, ironically. I'm a survivor of, of many things, including incest and domestic violence and date rape. And I make movies and act, and I'm also a safe side super chick for little kids. So I'm a, I use my art to make movies, films, and magic and music to educate and uplift kids and adults to use my own story as a healing pathway to show us and help guide people with escape routes out of pain and suffering, truly. So every movie I make and every music, all the music I work on has something to do with healing and awareness, even if it's a little bit of a trick. Well, we'll get to tricks later, but I, we can't wait to hear. But I, I love the part where you said your accessible self, where you came to this place to be this artist that you are, started with yourself as a survivor and you you rattled off oh my gosh so many levels and layers and times and places where you have been a survivor um could you you know pick a couple and share that experience with our how old were you were you um a child were you a teen were you in iowa were you in new york were you in india tell us more oh awesome absolutely i was i'm from the mountains of north carolina 
and I lived in North Carolina and South Carolina. And I, my father is a child molester, my biological father, and he left my mother when she, when I was three for her best friend who had two kids. So if you know anything about perpetrators, that was very convenient for him. And I went to live with them because it was the perfect family. Like he married a woman who had two kids. They had quite literally a white picket fence. And my mom was the single mom who wasn't a Christian and she was like the wild one. So it made sense for me to go to the perfect family. Ha ha ha. And from three to eight years old is when sexual abuse was happening in the home. And mine was a little bit different than the tip. I mean, I hate to say a typical story, but the the majority of stories I've heard are secrets. In my family, it wasn't a secret. Everyone was involved. My stepmother was involved. She was molesting us. My brother was doing what my bro- my dad was doing. My sister and I were trying things. Then my brother and I were, my brother was molesting me and my sister. It was very, very much a house of sexual abuse always. Yeah. Before you leave that though, um, Angela, I I think what you just said is it just grounded me. Like I was, I felt like I was a board being knocked into the floor in a grounding literally and figuratively, because when you said it's not a secret, everyone was doing it and everyone knew it. And there were participants knowing and unknowing is kind of what I heard you say. They're, they're like, we all were, was it interesting? Was it habit? Was it, you know, tell, was it daily? Was it nightly? Was it, you know, I think some of our listeners, Angela, they, they've described things where they happened. It's it's secretively, as you said, it's not, it was snuck in into the bedroom or behind closed doors or when someone was not around, but what you just landed for me was a really amazing narrative you you were like I almost I don't want to picture it but yeah I I don't want to be triggering you know what I mean but yeah yeah but you know help our listeners understand because some of them are going to be like what yeah well it was all orchestrated by my biological dad so he was controlling my stepmother and making her do things and then she was I don't like the word molested it sounds like a clown car you know, it does. Well, choose another one. What's your word? Assaulted, you know, sexually abused, like it was, you know, forced to do things. And so my sister and I, it was not nightly. It was more common with my sister privately with my dad. So he would abuse all of us in the same room. So we all had to get naked. He would make my stepmother like lie on the bed and he tried to get my step brother to have sex with his mom and then we would have to massage her and then we would have to massage him and then you know two happy endings sadly and then he would take my sister privately so that for me was the worst because it was my I have such survivor guilt with that or did for years I mean I've certainly done a ton of healing work but I had huge survivor guilt because that was my biological dad and that was my sister, my stepsister, but I, I claimed her as my sister and watching what was happening and not understanding fully what was going on. Um, Angela, I have another, yep, I have another one and I'm sure Claire does too. I'm just trying to sit in the space of our listeners. So was this a, during the day? Was it on weekends? Was it in evenings? Like, are we talking, you said daily? I don't think you necessarily said this is daily and what time and when. Just give us a 
that more of, you know, how often and what time of day? Uh, in the late afternoons was my brother would, would sexually abuse my sister and I because after school, like after school, when you got home from school, that was before the parents got home. Wow. And then no homework. Just let's go do this. Yeah. <laughs> and right. But my brother was a victim. You know, he was acting out, you know, it was, he was 12 years old. Like he, uh, and then my my biological dad was in the evenings and on the weekends. Like he was very into nudist colonies. Like that was our trip. We would go on the, in the weekends in the summer was always nudist colonies. And in the, yeah, in the evenings, it was my sister. Like he would take my sister into their bedroom and it was not, and my, with my stepmother, like, so we'd be in the hallway and she'd be like, okay. And she'd open the door and my stepsister would go inside, shut the door and then my stepmother would walk me away. And as a little kid, I was like, I want to go in there. I want to do it. Pick me. Pick me. Yeah. Remind our listeners, were you 12? No, or I was 10? three to eight. Oh, so I w- even younger. And your sister, your stepsister was? My sister was two years older than me. So she was five to mm. 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I have a seven-year-old. So like thinking about that when that's, that's also intense, yes. you know, watching her grow up and realize like, and see her during the ages that we were abused. It's so triggering. It's so triggering. I completely agree. Angela, I sit in the same shoes. Um, Claire, hmm? yeah, no, I was just listening. Oh my gosh, Angela, I, now being a parent myself and Claire as well, we sit in the shoes of our children as we watched ourselves relive ourselves almost, Right. We watch ourselves relive ourselves at those same ages and stages. And, you know, we have ages and stages across the board listening to us. And some have not yet gotten to the place where you are, Angela, to have your a, a child, uh, you know, a genetic material go through this ages where we're reliving and revisiting our own trauma. But Claire, go Well, ahead. I was just thinking how complicated that whole situation was where you wanted to be part of it because you felt left out Mm -hmm. i mean that whole situation um and if it had gone on longer who knows what would have happened but it was um uh i know that eventually it came to a halt um and maybe you could explain what happened how that stopped oh uh my brother my stepbrother who i claim is my brother he's since deceased now i miss him terribly but he told his real dad his biological dad what was happening and his biological dad hated my dad so looked you know because he had his wife had left him for my dad right and so he saw any excuse it was more like an ego thing to be honest not actually protect the kids but it was like oh great i can go after him now so he called social services literally that day social after he spoke to them Two social workers came to the school where me and my stepsister were in elementary school. They called us to the principal's office. You know, you get the announcement, Angie, come to the principal's office. Still, like I've done a lot of healing work over the over the years, but that, like, we need to talk to you. Can you please come to the office? That gives me like a like, scary. Like, because the, my whole life changed. I walked into the principal's office. My sister's already sitting there. It was in the afternoon. I love that you asked those details. And there was two wonderful social workers there, Miss Miss Ford and Miss Lemons, and they dif- uh, separately and then together interviewed me and my sister. 
confirmed that these things were happening and then took us right then. Like we never went back to the house. We went to a foster care, like right from school. And then they went, they went and picked up our clothes and our bags and stuff. And ironically, Mary Lemons was my social worker. It was her first case. Oh my gosh. And she was so traumatized because she had prepared herself for like the secret and like the weirdo stepdad and the, and, and seeing like that it was the whole family and they all, it weird, it like, she was done. She literally quit. She quit and she started working with healing with horses and she and I are still friends today. Oh my gosh. That's great. And I go like, I'm, I just, that, that story right there is like, oh yeah. That's awesome. Wow. It, it only says to me, Angela, how important the work we are doing is when we trigger others to also go deeper and wider and change their entire trajectory as well. It's it's so powerful. And that's what we're doing with the podcast. That's what you're doing now with us. You're changing the narrative, the understanding, the connectivity with your own story and vulnerability. And oh my gosh, you've rocked our world right now. I'm sorry, you have. And the only other thing I'm trying to sit in this, the shoes of so many of our listeners, um, everything you've said was poignant and powerful. And Claire, your question was great, but I kind of want to think about one more part of what you said, which I, I want to dig in. So much of our vulnerability as, I'll say, women and then I can try and go larger to all genders. It's when we feel someone's getting treatment because they're special. Oh, yeah. They're prettier. They're right. And the part that makes me cry a lot, like if I had a soul cry with you, is you standing outside being shepherded. I'm just envisioning that hallway with... I'm envisioning the shag carpet. I don't know how old you are. Literally shag carpet, Katie. Literally. Like a greenish, like like a limeish green shag carpet. I'm literally sitting with you in, because I have those same walls in my house. And I can picture the really, you know, it wasn't a wood door. It was one of those kind of cheap doors. with Yes, 100% where you could easily put your fist through, which my dad did. And we didn't have the, you know, the beadboarding. We didn't have like even cornerscope, you know, the, the the wood frame on the bottom and the top of the ceiling. No, it was just right to the floor, wallboard, white, white, white paint, like some, you know, select upon, but it kind of had a texture because I would often run, run my fingers upon it and put my toes through the shag. So I'm kind of sitting there with you like thinking I could be not in slippers because I couldn't afford slippers. <laughs> I understand. Right. I'm in the, mm -hmm. this nightgown that came from some five and dime that was sort of sexy back then. Oh my God. In the seventies, we had these nightgowns. Who has a nightgown? Right. It was like to our ankles to be modest. But it was still had a bustier kind of apparatus, even though we had no chest at age eight or 10. But they, we we were already becoming dolls. And I'm so kind true. of, uh, yeah, I'm just sitting with you thinking like, I can't imagine you being shepherded down 
thinking so much is happening behind closed doors that I don't even have. I wish I was the princess that was lauded the access to the castle. And that's what I heard you say so far. And if we did, I'll just staple myself, um, zip my mouth. But then if I take that to the year current, because you and I, you know, we're not old, Angela, not one of us. We are just living the dynasty of all the years. But if we take it up a notch to current day, there are still children being abused in the same way. They don't have a shag because they don't make it anymore. But there's still, to me, whether the carpeting is the same or different, the idea that you put forth tonight that is really sounding with me is how predators take advantage of our vulnerability of being the wanted, the princess, the named, the selected, mm-hmm. the perfect. Chosen. And I, I, the chosen. Well said. Well said, Angela. So tonight I was thinking as you were speaking, my brain went to when we stop thinking that we need to be chosen instead of we can make the choice. That shift is, you know, a noun to an, you know, an object. We're going from, yeah, we're going from, we're going from the the predicate (laughs) to the objective case. And so often, I think, as we as girls, especially, are still taught to be the objective case instead of the predicate, you know, the predicate. And what I know you've worked so long, and I'd love to hear from you. Um, let's just sew up where you went after we got through shag carpeting. I'm sorry to go there, but, you know, I, I, I don't know if you want to opine anything else, but I think the narrative you need to go is from shag to eight-year-old self to where you went because we were missing middle school and high school and college for you. True. I do. I do want to interject one little thing is the chosen thing, because even if, if girls and, and boys but may, that are listening to this, like that really hearing that chosen and not being chosen and, you know, life is like an Excel spreadsheet and you can, live like if you've been going through all of these things like I wasn't chosen as a child I had repeated relationships and was interested in the bad boys who does not choose you who don't choose you or who like treat you like crap and they're never really choosing you until I had to link that exact shag garment moment of not being chosen and not being wanted which wasn't real that's the meaning I put on it And that was huge for me because so that was like, because you can do all the healing work that you want, right? For that old, for the little kid sitting in the carpet. But to see what we do later was huge for me of really like, oh, wow, why does this feel so familiar with this relationship? Because I'm not being chosen. That was really huge for me. Like that was massively life changing then I think we need to get there because I know I, we want to laud your work, but I think your personal narrative is meritous before we ask everyone to watch films and read books. Angela, you're sitting in the soul of your healing journey and you have offered so much. So Claire, um, anything else? Because I have a question next. (laughs) 
Well, I, I, okay. Well, I know, but I think we can move into that space that you wanted to go, Katie, which is, you know, middle school and high school. So you were put in foster care, which can be very traumatic too. What, what happened from that point? I mean, was there a trial? What happened? So my sister and I, that moment, really, at that moment, were taken out of the home and driven to this weird foster care. And it was truly horrible. For me, I would have taken my dad a hundred times over. For my sister, no way, Jose, because my my dad was being much, much more violent with her. Um, but that foster care was terrible because they starved us. So that's where I got like, I have this big, you know, long issue with food, which a lot of people do, you know, who've been through this abuse. Um, me, I need food in the refrigerator. Otherwise, I, I get start getting panic and anxiety, whether I'm going to eat it or not. <laughs> I just I need a pantry and I need a refrigerator full of food. Um, so that was horrible. That was uh, not long. It was about five, six months while there was a family trial a family hearing because it wasn't not in criminal court. It was in family court. And so we all had to go up on stand. That was also incredibly traumatic sitting there. You like this visual, Katie. So picture me in the little dress that you kind of got. It's almost like getting ready for Sunday school, but you're poor. And I'm just kicking the witness stand. Just kicking the witness stand to do do, like little and and just stare at the clock on the back wall. That's what they told me. Don't look at your dad. Just answer the questions from the lawyer and just stare at the clock on the back wall. And I was just staring at the clock on the back wall. Ironically, I really love clocks. And just kicking this thing, kicking the witness stand. And being berated by his the defense attorney was very traumatic. Because there it was one of these really like harsh, mean lawyers trying to trip you up like I'm like gaslighting me you know like oh did you really mean that or you you said something that you didn't really mean right there did you, did you you know and trying to twist your words around and they interviewed my brother my stepsister my stepbrother and my stepsister and then I went on and apparently according my mom who was not allowed in the room they wouldn't let her she was sitting outside in the hallway and her attorney came out and he's like, well, Angie just sealed that deal because apparently the lawyer was just like mean. He was very mean. And I was a little hellion when I was a kid. I would stand up for people. I got in so many fights. I protected everybody because I was trying to protect my sister, right? Like deep down. So I would never protect myself, but I would protect other people, right? So I really don't like bullies. Never have because my dad is one. And this lawyer was just being so mean and like scary. Right. And he was like, well, it was lotion, the white stuff that it it was lotion that came out. It was lotion. And I'm sorry, you, you warned about the triggering Claire. Um, so, and I was like, no, it was the white stuff that shot out of the top of it, his thing. And there was this like silence in the room. And I didn't even quite realize what I had just done, you know, but there was kind of silence. And then the the judge kind of looked down at me from the, and I just looked up at him and I'm just like kicking it, kicking the window <laughs> stand <laughs> with my patent leather shoes. And then the guy, the jerk lawyer didn't have it. it I, he, I silenced him. I was like, he was like, uh, like, 
you know, that, that open mouth doesn't know what to say. And he literally turned around and just went back to the table. And then there, everyone was weird. I was, I was a little kid. I was like, what's the matter with that? It happened all the time. <laughs> so that was, um, so we were taken out and we lived in foster care from that. And after that hearing, I went to live with my mom because she, you know, obviously I'm not going to live with my father. And you know what happened? This is also infuriating. The family hearing, um, I have a lot of issues with family court, by the way. Don't get me started on that. Um, they just said that he and my stepmother had to have counseling, which they never did. That was it. He owned a candy store. He owned an arcade. He was the candy man. Like he drove around literally in a van with full of boxes of candy and a mattress. I'm not even joking. Oh, my gosh. I it, Where I went ahead with our conversation, Claire and Angela, this is um, – thank you so much – I, I think our listeners are either sitting in shag carpet with me and little princess dress um, or they're kind of, we have to put up some images for those who are way too young. But I, I think before we get to your work and what informed your work, I think we should start with your healing process and how you created this visionary self of artistic and visionary expression of your hurt that has transformed into healing. I asked two questions first, Angela, though. We always like to start with your personal healing. You know, I'm really good. Like I'm sure you are saying like, here's what I did with all these groups of my brain and all that, but we have to go with the heart before the brain just for a moment. So with your heart, and that means the depths of despair, if there was anxiety, if there's like, I'm not good enough, or how do I climb out of my nightmares? Like, I think a lot of our survivors really want to hear how you climbed out of the nightmares of your life. I'll say it that way. And then if you could speak to that, that would be awesome. How, how did you climb out? Wow. So I uh, picture the little girl, you know, not being chosen. It And like I said, like life is an Excel spreadsheet and I became an, a performer. I always wanted the attention. I was the comedian. I was the model. I ended up becoming a model and an actress. And during all this, I was immediately successful. Like every single thing I did, I was successful. I mean, it, in a, I'm not, I don't mean that as a jerk way. It was like, I was, I was good and I was pretty and I wanted to be chosen so bad right? So that was the core of it. And then I was in relationships and in situations that were really dangerous. And like, you know, I, I was in situations modeling in Europe that, oh my gosh, with these playboys and these human trafficking and, and I witnessed so much, but I had already been through what I went through with my father. I actually saved girls in the modeling world from being roofied, like they were roofied and I'm the one that protected them as the guy is coming, like, I will take her to the hospital. I was like, like, hell you will. And so I was still like protecting the girls against the bullies, but I didn't go into my own healing. I was on hyper, just reactive autopilot, to be honest. And I was, you know, I lived in New York. I was modeling. I was, 
I, I, and then I moved to LA and I started acting and writing and I booked my first acting job and all the time I had written, like I've always written because my mother, when she got custody of me, her suggestion for healing was that I write it down, write it down, always write it down. And so I would write it down, but I didn't really fully write what I was really going through. You know, I was writing stories and like, like I could leave my life, you know, in the stories. But truth be told, I was a self-mutilator and a self-abuser. I mean, on the front, like I was on the cover of magazines. I was on the runways with all Christy Turlington and Linda Evangelista. I was like the working class girl, like in the back, you know, paid like a fourth of what they got. They got. But I was self-mutilating and I was abusing myself and honestly hated myself because I just want to be chosen. And I kept trying to be chosen by other people outside of me and outside of my own Honestly, I have a big faith experience. You know, that's my, that's a lot of my healing. But um, yeah, I, I, that was my big, huge reveal. So let me ask you a quick question, if I can. And you, you were self mutilating. Did you do this in a way where, since you were a model, you had to do it in hidden places? Um, I never cut, I smacked myself. Like I would smack myself. And it always was, in the presence of a man who was ridiculing and trying to control me. And I would do that to, and then they would stop. It was almost like I'm getting myself into a situation. This is what's so interesting, like right what we do to ourselves, right? And we can't see it. Like I didn't see it. If you told me that I was doing that, I would have lied to your face. And like, but I was in these situations where there's like really controlling like abusive men, not, not physically abusive, but like really like tearing you apart, you know, psychologically. abusive. Yeah. Oh yeah. And to make it stop, I would just violently smack myself kind of like that scene in, in American beauty where she just smacks herself over and over. I saw that movie. I was like, Oh my God, I did that. Um, so I, and once I like scratched my face with one guy who was like, ridiculing me about how like I was so stupid or and I just literally just scratched my face down down to get him to stop and he was like whoa she's crazy and it made the ridiculing stop but I didn't see that I didn't see that I was doing that I didn't admit even to therapists because I had you know you got to go to therapy right I was in some therapy um but I never really admitted it since I have since learned you never lie to your therapist and you never lie to your lawyer or your accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't honestly until I made my documentary. That's what really, truly threw me into my own healing. So, so what led you to make the documentary? A kind of ridiculing man telling me that I couldn't do it and that I was too young and too female to direct a movie. And I just, the fierce little girl, like the girl in the patent leather shoes, kicking the, kick, I was just like, oh yeah, well, let me tell you something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just realized something the, the other night too, on like standing up for yourself, because I never really stood up for myself, except unless it was for other people. And along with my, my abusive dad, my 
mom's side of the family, my grandmother was very violent and, and would literally switch you. I mean, and my mom has dealt with much, a lot of abuse from being physically abused by her mom. And so I, with my mom, once I went to live with her, I had no rules. Like my mom went the other way. She was like, she, uh, there was no rules. No, you have complete freedom, which is like, I, I, I like some rules. But there was a moment when I was eight years old where my grandmother was coming out to beat me and my two little cousins. She had the switch in her hand and I stood there. I was barefoot that time. I didn't have my patent leather shoes, but I still had a similar dress. In fact, come to think of it, it might've even been the same dress. Um, Cause we were, we were Pope <laughs> and I was standing on the sidewalk and here she comes at me with the switch and I cursed her out. I said every word that didn't even make any sense to protect my cousins. And she stood there and she just like stared at me mouth agape, kind of like that lawyer and turned around kind of like that lawyer. I'm just connecting these right now at this moment and, um, and went back inside and she never beat me again. Wow. Yeah. So it's amazing. But, but the, the, the real, the healing stuff for me is I will do that for other people. Uh-huh. But not for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So you, so, you know, it just, I know that you started doing um, this particular focus for your documentary was, well, it wasn't, it turned out not to be what you thought it was going to be. Am I right? No, I was so upset with men telling us that we can't do things. It just irritates me. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to just do a quick movie. I'll interview women who have my same name. And this is what my, my goal is. Who are you? Where have you been? And where are you going? That's it. Who are you? Where have you been? And where are you going? And I interviewed women who had my same name, which is ironically, I wasn't born Angela Shelton. I changed my name when I was 18. Angela was my born name, um, but not Shelton. And I changed that because I love the name. And I did it when I was 18, because as I went into modeling and acting and all this stuff, I didn't want to carry my dad's name. I didn't want to give any kind of spotlight to that. And so I changed my name. So the name Angela Shelton for me, really, it's not about me. It's about a much bigger community and much bigger. Like it means for me, like resiliency, really. And so when my when this guy who was very similar to my dad, to be honest, with how he was very controlling and, you know, punched holes in walls, you know, uh, told me I couldn't make a movie. I was too young and too female. It really did fire me up. Like I was like, picture like Annie Oakley with gun, like, I'm like, oh yeah, watch me. What's funny about that is that I'm the one who went through the life change. Like it turned my whole life upside down. Like it, I lost everything. Like quite literally, I lost every single thing. Money, my house, my car, friends, my whole entire like Hollywood team, agent, manager, PR people, they're all lost, lost everything when I did that documentary. Why was that? Why, why, why did that happen? Because, well, I had the meeting, Claire, when they're like, where they're sitting you down and you're like, well, um, you're talking a lot about incest and rape and it's like not sexy. Yeah. This was way before me too, right? This is like way, way before me too. So, and I was faced with this decision and it was kind of like when I made the documentary. So 
I was just interviewing women who shared my name. And what I saw was they were amazing. And 70% of them had been through child sexual abuse, rape, or domestic violence. And they literally are showing me myself. And they were showing me like my, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I had my Angela Shelton, Virginia, who escaped domestic violence. Like she, to me, was like the holy grail because she was so delightful and she kept her her spirit and her soul and her giggle, you know, but she'd been through like hell, right? And here I'm the one making the movie and the women I'm interviewing are the ones that actually turned my life upside down. They were better than any therapist I ever had, to be honest. It was just sharing story and having conversations like we're having, like the, like literally a conversation can turn your life completely around uh, in a, like one, one conversation. I just happen to have many because I'm interviewing tons of women who have my same name. And it made me really look at myself and it made me really be honest of like, oh, crap. Here I'm supposed to be at the helm. You're the and I'm director. The one supposed to have yeah. it together. I'm the one that has yeah, I'm the director. I have the Hollywood team and I'm cracking down the middle. Like I'm literally cracking in half and realizing that, first of all, I haven't even told all y'all that secretly I beat myself up. Secretly, I actually hate myself. Secretly, I wish that you would, you know, somebody would in the world would choose me. When at the end, I, you know, I have to choose myself. That was the biggest lesson. And so easy. It's always, it's like the easy, like, aha moment, right? Well, and there's, we see you cracking in that film. Yes. You, you literally see me go begin my healing journey. Like, that's it. That Like you saw like crack, her laugh goes. Choo. That's why like my life, there was life before the movie and there was life after that movie. And they are very different. Had I never made that movie, I probably would be married to some jerk, popping pills and drunk all day, to be honest. Like that poor woman in Las Vegas or wherever she was who would only call you. Yeah, well, just simply having conversations with other women kind of like that. I mean, this is the same. You know, we're having conversations. It had so many aha moments, so many profound, like, honestly, punch me in the face. Like, punch me in the face. And it woke me up. It literally, it woke me up on so many levels, spiritually, my mind, my body, my, I mean, literally it, it, it was full circle. Like it woke me up and knocked me out. You know, most of our listeners are not going to be able to make a movie or do what you've done. But what I heard you say is listening to stories, survivors was healing. So I, I kind of land on you know, there was solace in hearing those who had the namesake, but really, truly, all of us are the namesake of, you know, you know, dot something survivor, you know, first name at last name at dot survivor. And I kind of land on the accessibility of all of us to somewhere access what you did and the brilliant film you made um, and your books and your all your writings. But, you know, if we ask our listeners to go there as you did, it's not just asking those with our namesakes. It's asking all of us with the survivorship and shag carpeting or, you know, it's, it's going back to where do we find... 
it's not just a name. You gave us a name, but I go with Shag. I go with, I go with all the other details you gave us through our conversations. They're not names, but they're all details that bring vibrancy and connectivity. And when we can bring those connectivities large, far, wide, international, beyond the language we speak, beyond the skin we sit in, you chose a name to carry your message. And I'm saying all of us can choose anything. You choose anything to connect with others who sit in our shoes. And when I think about my journey of 30 years, the shoes I sit in, all the places I've been, um, Angel, it's just, I hurt. I felt objectified. I needed to know where to from here. It's as simple as that. I, I, you hurt me. I feel less than human. How do I carve out humanness from where I went as an object? And you gave us a landscape that you took a pathway and I only want to land with this question. Sorry, it's a long winded, but that's where I went. Um, I would like to hear from you to be accessible because not everyone's going to make a film. What's your words of advice to our survivors who want to find the same kindred, spiritual soul, blood, emotional baggage, you know, whatever you found that was healing. What was it that you loved the most? What part of that connectivity? Because it wasn't just a name. I'm going to say it wasn't a name. So go deeper. So you started with a name. You started with something. And then where did you go and what did you love? First of all, I wouldn't necessarily recommend making a movie. It's very difficult. (laughs) Honestly, it's a matter of having conversations. And the most profound was really truly listening and then really truly being heard. And the most beautiful moments, honestly, I had with that movie was traveling with the movie or not. Well, just traveling in general and random strangers are like the most beautiful moments in taxis and airplanes in the grocery store, being truly present with another human and like, basically being air quotes naked, but in a healthy way, like we're, we're at, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hide. I'm going to be fully present. I'm just going li- to literally open my heart and show who I am, you know, on a spiritual level, pretty much that's what it is for me that you really face that everyone has a story. That is what that's taught me that I, it makes me change every When I come into contact with everyone, like literally every single human I come into contact with, I look at them different. I'm I'm more present with them. I'm I'm different ever since I did that project. Let's just say or experiment. You could do it in one day, like literally just have conversations with humans. If I can ask a question or interject for a second, because I know that. The, you know, the, searching for Angela Shelton was so well received and you were traveling all over the world and, you know, showing the film and discussing it. And then you were getting tons of survivor stories and you were so present. I've witnessed this with so many. And then that took a psychic toll for you. So you had to go through, kind of finish your healing process in a way because you obviously had neglected a few things. And you've 
morph that and transform that into a whole lot of other resources and platforms for survivors and a survivor guide and all kinds of information. I'm just wondering, how do you, what do you do to maintain yourself? Because, I mean, Katie's out there in the world talking about her story a lot. And there's a price you pay for that, you know, that, that, and what have you learned that you could share about, you know, maintaining healing yourself in a, this is really beyond just general, I'm going to heal for myself, but I'm healing from everything I'm hearing, you know, um, what, what can you share in that regard? Wow. Well, it's really almost like having a steering wheel, you know, like it's like, ha- uh, having a steering wheel, sometimes you need to hold on, you need to hold on. This is a rough, rough ride. <clears throat> and I go full circle. So it's not a matter of just staying in my story. It's not a matter of just talking about the past. I love to do comedy. I'm a really good cook. I love to dance. I have a really great, awesome kid. I make lamps with hats as my playtime. That's because it's crazy. But like, if you think about it like a wheel, and I just keep it simple for myself, is like, you have to see yourself, like see, feel, heal, use it, play. Like it's like almost like a, that's what I do for in my speaking engagements too. With that, It's like you see yourself, like you see, like you really truly acknowledge yourself and how the whole trauma is affecting you, right? And then you, you, you feel that, you like feel your heart and you like get grounded and then you start healing because there's a whole bunch of healing techniques you can do. We can go into endless, like that's a whole hour plus. Yeah. And, and then you use it, like you you use your voice, like it doesn't matter. You don't have to be in entertainment. It could literally be, could be a nurse. You know what I mean? Um, and then you you connect with play again for me, like connecting play and the healing is how I stay uh, present and healthy. And I stopped self-mutilating. And actually, you brought that up, Claire. Um, it was speaking with other people. And it was the, the Angela Shelton's inspired me to f- go down my healing path. But it was a moment on stage, Katie. Here's your visual. It was literally, I was in my hometown, right? I was in my home, well, not my hometown, I was in my home state speaking. And I'm speaking about this. I've been traveling, I, I'm writing a book. Um, and it was this gr- this college girl. And this beautiful young college girl that held her, you know, raised her hand. She started talking about being a self-mutilator, right? And I'm talking to her about exactly I, out of the word, out of my mouth are coming the words that the the typical words that people say. Well, you shouldn't do that. Like, you're beautiful and you have your life ahead of you. And the night before in the hotel room, I had done it. And that was my big, like, uh, that was the last time I did it. Like I literally, because I was like, oh my God, I refuse. I refuse to be a hypocrite. Right. I just can't. So I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go try all the healing techniques myself. I'm actually going to stop doing this. I'm going to do, you know, I, I walk me down the plank and I literally, I'm talking to this girl and I literally had that moment where I'm like, oh my God, I'm talking to myself. And I was like, I will make a commitment right now to stop right now if you do. 
And she and I had this moment, like we, like, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't keep up with her. This was like, like early, early on before we have like email lists and all this stuff. But I hope that girl has stopped. I hope she did. Because I did. Mm. Wow. What a moment. Yeah. Um, may I just say one thing and then we roll out. Angela, the most powerful things that have sustained me are kind of that moment you just described. When one person says, oh, I didn't kill myself tonight. <laughs> I, I wanted to, um, but I didn't. And I'm hearing you say the same. And the only thing I'm thinking about us tonight, Angela, is you've given so much. Um, but there are so many people who are not hearing our voices right? We're still not reaching more and more. And the the last question I have is both of us, you, we wear white skin. I'm sorry to say, Angela, we wear white skin. Um, And some people may tune us out tonight because of that fact. And I want to find a way to their hearts and souls that don't judge us by the skin we're in. What would you say to that tonight before we close out? Well, in my movie, The Searching for Angela Shelton, half of them wear white skin and half are black. And there's one Muslim who's a mixed race. So I'm like... But uh, uh, let me reposition it. Because even if we put characters, you just said, I put characters in the narrative. I love that part. We're putting diverse visages but we have to wear the skin we're in when we speak our own voices um you know we can put others in the narrative but you need to be the leader how would you say to i'll just give you one example um the jaguars in jacksonville asked me to speak for three years in a row to 23 public schools in Jacksonville. I would show up every day for three weeks in January for three years in a row. I was scared S-less because the only person those everyone saw was my white face. Everyone else was not white. Not one person was white. I was, every time I had to open my mouth, I was like, I'm being judged by the skin I'm in. And we, when, if you could be me, just, just say like, okay, you're Angela, brilliant, amazing human, taxed, asked, invited to come to Jacksonville or any other city to sit for every public school for three weeks at a time, talk to their seniors, and you will be the only white face you see every three weeks. What would you say? I probably would start with pain. My my first gut reaction would be to reveal some really intense pain and, and inner truth. That like makes you, you know, show that you're human. You're not that like white little, you know, perfect girl. 
also I come from poverty too. Sounds like you do as well. So like coming from poverty is, is also like, it's, it, it, it can't compare, but I mean, you certainly have, it's, I also, t- I, just me personally, I tend to be very funny. So like, I'd come in and be like, just not disrespectful to myself, but a little self-deprecating, like just, just revealing, like I got all these flaws, you know, and I've got all this, you know, past self-hatred and, but that's a, that's a big one. I, I went, I was the only white girl at an all black school. So I, um, I can understand that. And I literally, I don't know, my, my inner, my inner person that gets me going mm-hmm. is I, I have an inner black woman that comes out in my brain. That, that's the one that gets me to do things. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I just, I know Claire will round us out. And this has been incredible. Angela, you dug deep and wide and far and up and down. You said, you said. <laughs> yeah, I did. I said, let's go there. And I think the conversation's only starting and it, maybe we need to have more if our listeners want to hear more from you and thank you for everything, Dave. There's a part two. <laughs> there's gotta be, cause there's so much, there's so much to hear that, you know, about what you're doing now with your music and, and the website and everything. It's brilliant. And I think it's a testimony to your personal conviction, Angela, you learned how to use what you had and, make it accessible to a lot more people who are survivors. And I'm so grateful. And, you know, we have to sit in the skin we're in and ask everyone who's not in the same skin to allow themselves to feel uncomfortable. Like we're not sitting in their same narrative, but we're trying to build a bridge and ask what's relative relevance to our narrative to your narrative. And I'm so excited about that conversation. And Angela, I'd love to have you back to think about that exact topic. You know, where to from here to make accessible narratives um, to every space and place globally. Um, I just now interviewed and worked with India um, like six different universities and where are they sitting? Where, where is their narrative going? And I think that everyone, every country, every culture, every race, every faith sits in a different, different place. And I love, love, love Angela, how you carved out your own space hewn from your own personal strength and vision. You are a testimony to that for sure. And I'm so honored to have you on our podcast. Claire, um, anything else? Um, Just thank you, Angela. And I can't wait till part two comes along. Um, So we'll definitely have to have you back. Um, I I would encourage um, our listeners to check out, just Google Angela's name and I think you'll find stuff. (laughs) It's AngelaSheldon.com. Thank you all of our listeners. This has been a Dear Katie podcast with our amazing um, interviewee, Angela, who has shared so much of her personal journey, her vision, and her thoughts for us as survivors and supporters. Thank you, Angela. Any closing comments from you? 
I really appreciate you, Katie, and what you're doing and the platform you're providing because I've seen it firsthand and it's affected me personally. Conversations, like a conversation can completely change and alter the course of your life. And by doing this, you are actually saving lives and I appreciate you so much. And thank you, Angela, for coming and sharing your story with us. And hopefully we'll have future conversations. Um, if for those of you who are interested in hearing more or seeing more about her work, visit AngelaShelton.com. But also, if you need resources and want to find out um, where you can get some support, if you visit TakeBackTheNight.org, we have a list of resources there if you need it. And just remember that self-care is self-love. Thank you so much, Claire. And thank you again, Angela. And again, to all of our listeners, this has been another hopefully empowering journey upon your own space to healing and supporting those you care very much about. Um, This is Katie Kessner. And together we will definitely um, heal and survive, thrive, shatter the silence and end the violence. So continue to join us again for next week's episode. Thank you and good night.